I'm Stephanie Geyer-Stevens. I'm executive producer of Outer Voices. And we are essentially a multimedia documentary group. We're all independent, and we market our pieces independently to uh, radio stations in the United States. They're also picked up a lot by Can Canadian stations and uh, internationally. And the reason we exist is because Partly because there's not too many people doing international documentary in the U.S. There's not a lot of people even doing international reporting anymore in the U.S. You'll find a few people filing for Marketplace and uh, NPR, but there's other than that, it's, there's there's a great lack. So my hope my hope is to inspire you all to pick up your mics and recorders and get on a plane. Partly. And um, since it's a pretty small group, let me just give you some prefatory remarks, and then I'd really want to hear what you might be here for. So I'm just going to tell you how I'm going to run this session. I'm going to talk, talk a little bit about the how and why of what I'm doing. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to run a slideshow of, it starts with um, some photos just of the team, I'm sorry, because some of them break up on this big screen. I, I apologize for that. And then it goes to a sequence of photos from the four different locations where we've done our documentary work thus far. And then I'm going to shut the slideshow down. I let it loop last time, and some people were like, this is just too freaky. I can't look at these photos while I'm listening to sound. So that's fine, and, and we're, I'm just going run to it, run it through the one time. So when you see the thing start to go again, raise your hand and I'll shut it off. Um, but I'll try to keep watching on here too. Um, so there's a how and a why of, of what we do. And, uh, hi Dime. Um, the, and I'll talk a, a little bit about both of those as we go along. But that is the bottom line, the main why is because there is not enough discussion right now about what's going on in the rest of the world in the United States. And at the same time, we are very isolated. We're more isolated than Australia, and it's surrounded by the ocean. We're so isolated culturally and socially and economically, partly because we're so on top of the heap, that's my feeling about it, that we don't need as much input from other places, and so we don't get it. But the flip side of that is that we make all kinds of decisions all the time that affect everybody else. And we're sort of leading the charge here politically in the world, and uh, wouldn't it be a good idea if we knew something about the rest of the world that we're leading the charge for? So that's a lot of the why for why I do my work. Um, I'm going to play some clips from other producers, but mostly it's from our own pieces. So um, just because it's easier for me to talk about stuff that we've done. But before I go any further, I'd be really interested to hear if people have specific ideas about why uh, uh, why they're here, or specific questions they're hoping I'm answering. And I'm just going to start this slideshow while we talk. Does anybody? Ha oh, 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 and the other thing is, um, 
again, for those of you who are just coming in, the slideshow starts with uh, photographs of the Out of Voices team, and it goes through the countries that we've worked in thus far. And it also has some photographs from professional photographers from our own collection and from pe photographs people have given us in the countries as well. So that's what we're going to run right now. Um, when you ask a question, they've asked me to ask you to use a mic. Does anybody want to come forward with anything they have on their mind? Okay. I mean, my question isn't really so much about the how or you know questions about being abroad or anything, but um, from a practical standpoint, I've been in several situations abroad where I pitch stories to a network, and they're like, "Well, we have someone there," and you know they're kind of our you know we have to go to them, or you have you have to like go run your story by them before we would take it. And, and it's just like a huge roadblock. Oh, and where, where was that? In, in, in where? Like what country? Yeah. Germany, Sweden. Oh, okay. Europe. So. Yeah, see, it might be a little different. What I'm, yeah, I guess mostly that's true. I'm not dealing with Europe. And there is a lot more conversation and regular feed-in from European countries to the U.S. And I don't know much about that. You would probably be able to inform us better than I can. So, yeah, go ahead. I just interested in hearing ideas about how to get yourself to these places to begin with. Um, obviously, you can just go and kind of go out on a limb and, and, and pitch stories, something get a grant, go on a fellowship. Uh, I wonder whether there's other, I'm just talking about how you do it here. Okay. If there are any other models. Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely go into that. Go ahead. I, I do a lot of reporting from Latin America, and I find the problem I have is because I'm interviewing people in a different language, it really limits how creative I can, um, how creative I can be when I'm doing production. Right. In terms of doing voiceover, I kind of be a lot more communicative than I want it to be. Right. So I'm wondering if you could talk about different ways to be creative when you're limited um, because of voiceover yeah, sure, that's right. Thank you. That's a great question. I just got back from a month-long reporting trip in Papua New Guinea. Oh. It was awesome and amazing, and I got great sound. But now I'm kind of at this paralyzed point of, you know, trying to log the data and just how do you how do you pull it all together? And, you know, how is this different from all the other story in the States? Just if you have any guidance or any suggestions. <laughs> so you went on assignment? I went on my own. Oh. I was in the Peace Corps there a couple years ago, and I wanted to go back and tell stories. I found some money from the Family Foundation for the ticket. And, um, so just if you have guidance about coming back part of it. <laughs> okay. And how to construct the story. Is that what you're asking? Right. Okay. Um, and you want to pitch a story to American radio? Or, or you want to write a story for American radio? Is that the idea? Yeah. Okay. All right. Great. Okay. Is there anything else before I get rolling? Okay. 
Um, those are all like the pivotal questions. So that's great. And some, I have some, you know, some like, here's the answer, and there's a lot of real um, possibilities for some of those questions, you know. Um, I guess, uh, in, uh, there's, there's a lot of different reasons to go overseas, and there's a lot of different ways to do it, and there's a lot of different ways to collect tape. And, um, and that's, yeah, so that's the nuts and bolts of it. Um, I think, for me, I already had in mind stories that I wanted to do. And um, that was, I really wanted to, well, let me just preface this. The big secret here is I'm not a radio person. I'm, I, I'm not, I mean, I am now. But I wasn't really. When I started, I knew nothing. And I had this bunch of stories I wanted to tell. And I was trying to figure out the best way to tell them. And I talked to this friend of mine who I'd worked with as an activist. That's what I was doing before. I was like an activist and an organizer. I started this nonprofit organization in Manhattan and, you know, sort of lived the life of the nonprofit people and got really burned out on it, frankly. And and I saw a lot of gaps in information and how we were doing things. And I went, you know, this kind of sucks and we got to figure out a better way to do this. And this other, and so this, uh, one of the people I was working with was a really good friend of mine and we all parted ways at a certain point, the people that formed this organization and she went into radio. You know, and a few years later, I was living in Hawaii and I said, look, I had this amazing experience. I met all these women from all over the world and they're doing all these incredible things and we gotta figure out a way to bring the, their information back to the US because there's a lot we can learn here. Now, how do we do that? Coffee table book? What do you, I mean, I don't know, what do you think? She said, I, Stephanie, I don't know anything about doing a book, but I can tell you this will make great radio. And I said, oh great, Susie, you do the radio part and you know, I'll just like cook up the stories. But that didn't exactly happen that way because um, she had a baby. In any case, so now I'm doing radio. And um, um, it's great, though, because it's the perfect medium for what I want to do. I want to be able to talk to people, who, some of whom work illegally. And you'll see some silhouetted photographs in this series here. And those are women who, talk, who work with us anonymously. There's a lot of other people who work with us anonymously we don't even have photographs of. And so radio is perfect for that. It's perfect for people who, have, who really have something they want to tell everybody, but they really don't want to know, have anyone know who they are. It's, and the other thing that's great about radio for us is we want to be able to tell a story and then hand it to anybody and have them be able to play it. And, and that's not something you can do with TV or film or or anything, well, maybe a book, okay. But, but radio's, you know, we're all here because we know radio has this huge emotion to it. And, and that really is working that way. And that's really exciting for us is that, you know, we're getting airplay. We just, I just got a download from a podcasting group in Malaysia. Now, how cool is that? You know, that they can just go online and they can pick up this piece and then here we go. There's there there it goes to Malaysia. So so that's why I'm doing this particular set of stories. And so everything I did was built around those parameters. So I kind of figured we have figured 
out answers to those questions of how do you get there, what do you do once you get there, and what do you do with a tape when you come home built around those parameters. But it doesn't mean, for example, that we have a story before we, you know, we don't necessarily know what the right story is. We just have some really interesting characters. We have some good settings, great sound, and then we have to figure out what the story is. And it can be hard, especially with an hour. If any of you have done hours, it's sort of like writing a novel. It's a long process. It can be a long process. So, um, um, so that's a little of the background and the insider information on us. Um, and then while this slideshow runs, I'm just going to go ahead up front and address some of those critical nuts and bolts questions. When we travel, we're almost exclusively in, we are exclusively in developing countries. Well, with the exception of Hawaii, sort of. Hawaii, you know, almost qualifies. And so we are also, ex with the exception of Hawaii, working entirely with non, uh, with people who speak English as a second language or people who don't speak English at all. And we are also almost exclusively in the tropics. And those are some really interesting situations, um, technically, to work in. The tropics um, are a big equipment consideration because you're dealing with heat and humidity, sometimes salt, definitely exposure to the elements at all times. And so the main piece of advice I can give you is no matter what kind of equipment you use, bring two of everything. If you use two different mics with two different cables, you bring two sets of those two cables, two pairs of headphones, two different um, recording mechanisms, and flash, although I'm really, really charged to try flash, bear in mind if you're recording remotely that that also means that eventually you're going to need to hook it into your laptop. That's yet another piece of equipment, and you have the capacity to do that. <clears throat> it might be easier than you think. For us, the only place where we really couldn't pull everything off so far is the Solomon Islands mostly because we were on a boat and we were very remote. But in, this, in Southeast Asia, you know, we were ready to be really rugged and roughing it. And man, they're so much more wired than we are. I mean, you can buy batteries at the corner store. So, you know, be prepared for the worst, but then a lot of times you're in a better situation than you think you are. Um, and the other practical consideration that those things bring up are what you were mentioning is about dealing with people speaking non, not speaking English or not speaking English well. And so if at all possible, if you know you're going and you're making a plan to go in order to do a radio piece, you know, try to line up a translator ahead of time. If you can't do that and you're in a country and you just get inspired or your translator is not what you thought it, they were, then allow yourself a margin of a few days to find somebody who speaks really fluently. For us, it was, it's never who we think it's going to be. We had this situation in Cambodia where we went to work with this group called Cambodian Women's Crisis Center. And um, they were like, oh, yeah, man, we have the translator for you. He's amazing. And 
and uh, he and also he you know work was like a social worker with some of the girls we were going to be interviewing and it turned out that really he was an aspiring filmmaker and he had his own whole idea about you know well this is what I think the story should be and I'm going to bring you to these various places and you know it was a bummer but and and while we were in the office when we first got to Phnom Penh we first got to their office in, in, in Phnom Penh we met the girl who was like the IT person. She was like fixing all the computers and she had the most amazing voice, you know. And we tried, um, and she spoke perfect, clear English with a nice Cambodian accent. It was like the perfect person. And we tried to convince, you know, the director of CWCC, can we please have her, you know. And, she, and she's like, no, she's got a job to do. I mean, if I went back there now, I think I could figure out a way to weasel, you know, and sort of like charm our way into being able to use her. But yeah, um, we also worked with a guy who was a UN, an official UN translator. So he was very good at knowing legal terms, but boy, his accent was so thick that we couldn't use it on tape. So you do, you do definitely lose a lot of spontaneity. Sometimes we're translating three times. In Solomon Islands, there were people who are Polynesian speakers only. And so then they would translate from Polynesian to uh, the local pigeon, and then from local pigeon to English. And so, honest to God, we don't have a picture of it, but there is this one point where Carlos is holding the mic and he's like falling over asleep because it just can be so tiring, it takes so long. So there is definitely some spontaneity you lose and you can't have a real fast, interesting conversation. It's just part of the deal when you're doing that kind of work though. Um, one thing we've done a lot of is retranslating. That tape that we did with that guy who was a filmmaker, we weren't really convinced that all of the answers we were getting were what the girls were saying. And so we had a Cambodian uh, student back in Berkeley um, spot check our translations. And sure enough, there are places where we were like, I don't know if that's, and we would go back to that tape and, and she would give us a new version. And sometimes he was right on and sometimes we, you know, the retranslation was really necessary. The other t thing about voiceover I'm gonna say really quickly is we tend to use a lot, as much as possible, we use the native language. So that people hear what it sounds like to speak Khmer, or hear what it sounds like to speak Karen. I think that's really important for Americans because we hear ourselves all the time. And, um, and we do this you know, sort of typical thing of like having it up in the clear and then fading it out. But when we do that, we're very meticulous to make sure that what we hear in the clear is not, it matches what the translator or the voiceover person is saying in English. And, uh, you know, maybe we don't need to, but I feel like we need to because I want Cambodians to listen to our piece. And if they hear somebody saying, I'm going to go to the store to buy lemons, and we're saying, and then I was sent to jail, you know, they're like, what the, f you know, what's this? And so, um, yeah, so I feel really, I feel like that I'm very, that's a big deal for me to match those two. Yeah, go ahead. To what extent do you direct your voiceovers? Um, the, the oh, yeah, that's um, a lot. Um, well, let's see. 
with a Cambodian piece, um, the voiceover work was done by um, non-inexperienced readers. We didn't know where to find any voiceover people. That's another issue because we always have this other thing about, well, if they're Cambodian, then they should sound Cambodian and not American. And so I, w I live in Sebastopol, which is a very white part of a very white state, California. And um, where am I going to find Cambodians? So I went into this donut shop, and there's a picture of Angkor Wat, which is like seeing a picture of the Eiffel Tower in a French restaurant. And so I went, wow. And there's an Asian woman behind the counter. I went, oh. And I said, so, you Cambodian? And she said, yeah. And I, and I said, well, I explained my story. I'm looking for Cambodians. This is really weird. And she's like, oh, that sounds really great. You know, and I can't do it. But if you go to any donut shop in all of Santa Rosa, they're all owned by Cambodians. And sure enough. And so guess where we got our voiceover talent? And we got three out of five voiceover people that way. And two we got from a temple in San Jose. And... Um, Sadly, the woman who was the most charged about doing it was the worst reader. But she was so emotional, even though she was really bad at reading her part, that it was still worth it to use her. But yeah, um, our audio engineer coached them. And some of them were just like naturals, you know? Really fabulous. I would say it's not really a question of like an audio engineer thing. Like, it's like you have to translate it to figure out but you do have to, I would say, put it in like proper spoken American English. I mean, they might have their accent to it, but the problem, the hitch when I do this is that I have to figure out what they're saying. And then, I, you know, like any translation, you have to put it in sort of spoken English, and then the person has to form it. Right. So, like, where do you, like, like this question, like, where do you, um, like how do you do you coach do you coach them as a producer or is it like the audio engineer trying to figure out like how to get them to Oh yeah, I was misleading. I meant my audio engineer was the one in the booth with them, so she was the one doing the coaching. Not because she was an audio engineer, but just by default. Like, but do you have a script that you're Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the whole thing's scripted. Yeah. They're not just like making it up based on the translation. They're reading, the voiceover people are reading from a script that we have written from, based on our translations and retranslations. Yeah, we have a whole paper script on the whole thing before we finally go to voiceover. So when you're interviewing someone, do you have another person right there translating it for you? Yes. On tape, so just so you yes. know what they're saying, so then you can write the script, then find a voiceover talent? Yes. That's how we do it. It's, it is clumsy, but that's the only way I know how, yeah. Well, there's another way. I mean, you can feel out, you know, um, before you go on a trip and, and interview people to be your translators and you know, over the phone. Because a lot of times a really good translator or interpreter can actually be the voice if, right. they, if they can translate. I like to do them on the spot because I feel like it's, you know, it depends on if you're dramatizing something later on and, you know, that's, that's another way, which is what, what you're doing. But if you are there in the country and the person is translated on the spot and you get that tape, right. it is so much more there and present. Yes. So, but I recommend before anybody takes a trip to to really you know, take take the time 
to find the people who can work with you. Right. Now, a lot of times they don't work for very much money. Right. I have to say, especially in developing countries. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's something in your budget. Yeah, absolutely. And we've done that as well. We do both. Because there are, you know, just circumstances where you're stuck there without a good translator, but you still have basic English. The other thing we do that we try to do, and you'll hear some tape of this, believe it or not, I will play a bunch of tape, um, is uh, we try to get people who speak well to speak themselves. And that I love. And I really, with the Cambodia piece especially, maybe that's the first one I'll play. I really pushed to have the woman who runs this organization, Chantal Ung, use her as her in, as herself rather than voice over her. And she's not the clearest English speaker, but you know you hear exactly what she's saying when you can hear the person, you know. And uh, and so it worked. It, it takes it takes a minute when you're listening to the radio to catch somebody with their accent. But if you can, with a long piece like this, you have the time. It's like you can, you can click in. So let me play that actually while we're on the topic. And, and tell me if in this short clip, if you, ca if you can get what it is she's saying. I'd be really interested to hear that actually. Let me see which clip this is. Oh yeah, this is a really interesting clip because it's really a boring kind of topic. She's sort of churning out this kind of basic information about social work, but I mean, some of the information is just mind-boggling. So, okay, here we go. We also repatriate girls back to Vietnam because many girls have been trafficked from Vietnam to Cambodia for prostitution. We also help to repatriate Cambodian girls who trafficked to Thailand back to Cambodia or who traffic to Malaysia, back to Cambodia as well. Usually we accompany them back, we trace for the family, in case the victim were so small, but yeah, most of the victims know where they're from. Right now we have too many clients, we could not follow up all the, the clients. And the Ministry of Social Affairs, with support from UNICEF, agreed to follow up all the girls whom we reintegrated back to the village. So it is very, very helpful for us. Many girls who are trafficked are the poor children or street children or belong to family with so many children. So now we target this group to provide scholarship to them so that they could go to public school. We support the girls on their school fee, on their transportation, their living costs school material, etc. The parents have to agree with us not to send the children to abroad to look for job. Okay, yeah. So that's a, that's a topic of that piece. Is, but that was, the, this, that was this amazing thing because generally my experience so far with Southeast Asians is they speak in kind of a monotone about the most horrifying details. And at first I thought, well, how am I going to get feeling, you know, here? And my, my trick 
I'm not, as I say, a master producer, but oftentimes when I'm talking to an American and I see that they're really charged about something but they're holding it, kind of holding it back a little emotionally, I say, well, how does that make you feel? And geez, the water just falls. But it doesn't work that way with, all, with everybody. And that's, that's sort of another topic I wanted to get into is that for me, it's been a huge learning experience and what my expectations are as an American and what we expect to hear from people, what I hear as emotion. And we just talk and we elaborate and we expand and we contract. And with Southeast Asians, it's so much is it implied that in order to bring out that implied emotion takes a good deal of silence or phrasing sometimes around uh, what they're saying in order for you to really feel what they're feeling. It just really get that profound impact. They're not gonna say, oh man, it hurt like hell and you wouldn't believe what I felt like when my mother died, it was just the most, they're not gonna say those things. They're gonna tell you my mother died in 1984 and then I moved to the refugee camp. They're not, you know? And so it's really a challenge as for me as a producer to begin to hear somebody and how they emote in a different culture. So let me, let me try another piece of tape on you, given that. This is also from Girls from Cambodia. And this is the stories of the girls themselves from the brothel. Or who have, they're girls, young women, girls and young women, who have escaped. They've been sold into brothels sometimes over a border. And then they've managed to escape. And these escapes, considering some of these girls, one of them's 13 years old, they're very young. These are kind of superhero stories that they're telling us. And uh, this is how they tell them. I tried to escape. I didn't know where I was or where to go. Son Soon was kidnapped, drugged, smuggled, and sold in Thailand. When I was being taken to another brothel, the driver tried to rape me in the car. He threatened me with a knife, so I tried to attack him. He threw me against the door. The car window was open and I fell through and ran away. I didn't know where I was. I walked all night long. In the morning, I came to a market on the Thai side of the border. I saw one of my neighbors there. She asked me why I was so dirty. She took me back to Cambodia. I'm 
nên là năm của vi vậy. I was sold to a karaoke bar. Bên nơi cái đó khen nó nhiều đã năm của vi không cay với chứ thật. The men would slip me addictive drugs. They also gave the girls diet pills so we would not get fat. I was constantly throwing up. I was forced to have sex, to work from 2 p.m. to 4 a.m. Sometimes I was hit by electric stick. If you don't treat the men as well as they expect, they'll beat you. I didn't have any birth control. If I asked a client, would you use a condom? He could say, no, I don't want to. And if he told the brothel owner, they would beat me. Shrey is currently at the Phnom Penh shelter. I tried to tell clients about my situation, but nobody would help because the brothel owner is a high-ranking official. I got sick, but they wouldn't give me any medicine. I tried to run away three times, but each time the bodyguards arrested me and beat me. Another time, the brothel owner was out and left his young daughter to watch. So I got out, ran away, and found a ride to Phnom Penh. I cannot go back to my village because I have HIV, AIDS. I worry the community would look down on my family. Shelter director Sindley Powell counsels the women and girls here. She coordinates their training and gives them constant support. She is the caregiver. One night received five clients. She said they forced her. One night she received five men. That was so painful. Tita is the girl whose mother sold her. She now lives at the shelter. One day, I tell the owner I want to walk outside. The brother owner believes me and lets me out. I had my aunt's phone number, so I call and ask, Are you sick? My mother told me you are, and did you receive the $100 from my mother? My aunt says, your mother's crazy. I didn't get sick. I tell my aunt what happened. She goes to Lakado, a human rights organization. They contact the police and rescue me from the brothel and then bring me here to CWCC. I had been here in the shelter for three months. They climb on the 
Now Tida is thinking about her future. She says she doesn't have a lot of relatives and doesn't know what to do with her life. I tell Tida, don't worry, you have me. You help me. You you sing me like. I tell her, think of me like a mother. She says she afraid. You know, people sold Tida three times already. She afraid I'll sell her again. So for me, the whole piece kind of got built around this one piece of tape that was this exchange between the shelter director and this little girl, and it was all in Khmer. But to me, that was like the most moving piece of tape we had out of all of our, all of our um, recording. And uh, so that was, for me, the central part of that. Um, segment, well, of the whole piece in a way. <clears throat> so, I guess there's different things that come up from that piece of um, tape too that, that um, uh, we can talk about. And one is that another, another thing you need to consider when you're recording overseas, except for maybe in Europe, is that you are almost always to expect that you're not gonna have a quiet room. Even when we were in the offices, the offices have bars but no windows, which makes sense. What do you need a window for when it's always 80 degrees? So there's always dogs, there's always roosters, there's always pigs, there's always kids, there's always motorbikes, there's always noise, which is good and bad. One is it's hard because you've got to always remember as you're recording, okay, there was a gecko. I've got to remember to go back and get a gecko so that when I cut that tape, I can put a gecko in if I need to. But uh, there's a lot of, uh, but the result is too, you collect a huge amount of really interesting sound. And um, the other thing that we've done too to, um, to um, deal with a lot of the ambient sound when we don't have really good ambient sound to match it when we're editing is we'll um, add in m music and naturally there's 
tons of great music out there too. There's, like you heard, there's pop music, but there's also some incredible and some really bizarre traditional music. And it's all really, really interesting to listen to. So there's lots of possibilities there for dealing with the fact that you don't get good, clean interview tape. So, yeah. I think you can ask a question about the use of that pop song after the especially sort of the story. Is that something that was planned at the brothel, or was that just sort of uh, oh, well, a choice? Um, the American pop song? Yeah. Yeah, it was... It, you might have missed that part because she was she has kind of a thick accent that voiceover gal and she's talking about being in a karaoke bar and so that was just a choice that we made of a karaoke song that kind of matched the you know was sort of ironic it was sort of an ironic but there is a lot of western pop music played in karaoke bars so the background sort of music was in a karaoke bar that was taped in a karaoke bar. But then when it went to the full, in the clear, that was music we added. Yeah. So, yeah, go ahead. You said there was an exchange between the, the uh, shelter director and the, and the, and the, the girl. And the girl. And did, when that was translated, that was translated after the fact, was that being translated to as it was happening. It's well, no, you hear the whole exchange back and forth untranslated, and then after that, I think the voiceover person explains, you know. But for you live in that interview, as it was happening. No, that was untranslated. She was. As it was so no one was translating to you right. as it was happening. Right. It was translated after. Because in those interviews, it was the shelter director who was our translator. A lot, and this brings up another important point too about translators. When you're in very intimate situations, one of the reasons we don't always get the best translators in terms of spoken English is because the only person that these girls will confide this information in is this very trusted shelter director. And if we, and if she says we're okay, then we're okay. That was going to be my next question, which is how do you think the trust? Yeah. There's. I can't imagine. I mean, just sort of the building your own map to get to that point of knowing that you're going to get these people to speak so openly and honestly We didn't know before we got there. We had gotten, and that's. I mean, there's different layers involved in di different stories. Sometimes it's just, you know, okay, let's go. With the Cambodia story, there was just. Okay, let me preface this. Most of the stories that I'm setting out to do are with people I have contacts with ahead of time, so the trust is already there, implicit. With the Cambodia story, I had mapped this story out with a woman who had a shelter. The shelter was flooded out. No more shelter. She lives in San Francisco full-time. Her daughter's going to college. She's not going back there. And, but I was already totally hooked on the story. And so through some connections, I found about Chantal Ung and her... Um, you know, her um, Cambodian Women's Crisis Center. And I said, look, you know, would you want to do a story with us? But she had just had this terrible situation. I'm trying to not tell you the whole story, but where someone had come in as a journalist and interviewed all of the staff, taken everybody's pictures, and then all of their photographs ended up on a pro-pedophile website because the organization was actually involved in a case against an, 
Australian man. And, and so she was like, you know, forget it. I'm not dealing with nobody that says they're a journalist anymore. To this day, she's extremely suspicious. And I said, you know, I totally understand. Check out all my references. And she did. She's a lawyer. And she called the Ford Foundation. She called everybody I gave her as a reference. And she came back to me. And she said, okay, you're legit. And it's okay. We'll do the story. But then once she opened the door, it was like the door was open wide, you know. And um, once we got in the country, it was almost a little too wide open. It was like, well, let, me, let us take you everywhere, you know. But it was all right, you know, because it turned out that, you know, the central story was really around the girls. But, uh, but yeah, so, so it was really to get in close and personal, the only way to do that is to have somebody who is inside that inner circle of whatever circle it is who says, this person's okay, I vouch for them. And this person who's bringing you into the inner circle is also okay with everybody. He can't or she can't be suspected by the group, you know? So... But choosing to have the shelter director ask for these questions and not say, I'm the journalist here, I'm going to ask for the questions. Right. Like that. Right. There's no way you would have gotten that tape probably. The what? I mean, do you think you could have, if you had said, I want to interview the girl directly, that would have... Well, they don't speak English. Those are young no, girls. No, I mean, but with, uh, with the trip, you know. Or, with, or were you in... I mean, you said the, the shelter director was also your translator. So I guess... Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, were you... You weren't... Were you feeding the shelter director questions? Yes. Oh, you were. Okay. Yes. That's what I wasn't under... I wasn't sure if maybe it was a, an exchange that you were recording just between the shelter director and them. That one part of the tape was an exchange between them because they, they were just having a conversation in between, you know, because she had been, she'd been asking her, so what happened next? And, and, then, and then, so then she just sort of got into this conversation, well, how do you feel now? And that was the part where, you know, she wasn't asking us, what do you want to know next anymore? And that's where we got that piece of tape. Yeah, yeah. This might be more, and since I came in late, I'm not sure if it's addressed, but in terms of when you have translators working with you in the field and then you get back to your home base and you end up writing the piece, I mean, oftentimes you're not going to be able to actually use that translator because even though they might, they might pick up the gist of the conversation, they might be paraphrasing, they might be leaving things out. And so um, I don't know if this is, this is sort of in between a question and recommendation because in, in, in my work I've done this is to perhaps find somebody who, depending on language, of course, speaks that language and goes through that tape with you and listens to it. Because you can end up with actually, uh, I've had this in the pieces that I've edited, crucial bits of information that are simply left out because they might be embarrassing, they might just, you know, people just compress things, so. Right, yeah, maybe you missed that part. We were talking about it before. The, I, where we did have a translator in Cambodia who we didn't trust to give us a full story. We used a lot of his tape, but parts of it we went through and retranslated back in the States with a Cambodian translator. And uh, we did find places exactly that, where he was too embarrassed to say certain words or what have you. And so in our, we re-scripted it around our retranslation. Sometimes also the translators just get tired, you know, I mean, it's a really tiring job. And uh, they'll skip, they'll condense, and you don't want that. <laughs> so, so um, it made me think about 
the whole sound element made me think of this other piece from another, from our most recent piece, Katule. This is done with the Karen refugees who are living in refugee camps along the Thai-Burma border. They're refugees from Burma who are living in camps in Thailand. They've been living in these camps for over 20 years. The longest standing refugee camps next to Palestine. It's a really incredible story that way because nobody really knows who they are. Nobody's ever heard of the Karens, right? Have you heard of the Karens? Anybody who's heard of the Karens? Raise your hands, right? Oh, you have. Very good. Oh, really? Oh, terrific. Okay. Well, so then I'll have to give you a copy of the piece. There's pockets. I hadn't heard of North Carolina. I've heard of Fresno, um, um, Minnesota, and a few pockets of the country where there are Karens. And actually, right now, they're in the process of being resettled. I don't need to tell you the whole story. What I, what I did want to do, though, was play you this piece. Again, we're talking to people. They're speaking in English, I think, almost exclusively. And um, they're giving you some pretty interesting stories. This is in the camp. And there's uh, lots of interesting sound in the background that's all real, including gunfire. Can you bring the volume down? Yeah, thank you. I can't, I'm sorry, I can't tell from here how things sound, so thank you. I left Burma when I was four years old, 1984. Me and my family, we live in the Korea State. We live in the jungle. They came and destroyed our school, our church, and then they also like burn our the rice. My father and my mother leave the place and there we became refugee people until now. My grandmother told me that. She came here when my father dead, when the Burmese and the Korean have a battle. My mother also died of the artillery. You, know, my, you see my face, the right face? We have a sign of the piece of artillery. Mela is the largest refugee camp on the Thai-Burma border. It's a bamboo ghetto, a city of tightly packed huts perched beneath steep limestone cliffs. Inside the barbed wire, this one camp is home to 50,000 Christian, Buddhist, and Muslim exiles from Burma. Refugees fill old petrol cans with water from a well, and bags of rice are divided into rations. There are thousands of children playing games along the narrow paths, strumming guitars in the shade, and goofing off in open-air classrooms. Burma once had the highest literacy rate in all of Southeast Asia. Now Burmese refugees make do with dozens of these crowded schools. High on the hill above the camp, a group of boys ride flattened pieces of bamboo down a steep dirt track. They tell me they're skiing.
so, um, so yeah, that's what I really love about that part is that there's all this stuff that goes on in a camp, and so you get to kind of maybe it's con not considered good sound design, but it's it's really real. <laughs> it's it's chaos. It's the sound of kind of the chaos of camp life. Um, and uh, there's I'm gonna if is there a question before I go on to another piece? Okay, I'm, go I'm gonna just go straight on to another section of this same piece. And this is really interesting because, in two ways, uh, two things I wanna bring up about this. Again, we have a, a Burmese, uh, a Karen woman speaking, and she's speaking uh, English. Um, and we're talking about a Special Olympics, but it's not just any Special Olympics. It's a landmine victim Special Olympics. And um, she's very attached to this story, and you can hear that in the piece. It's really nice. And it, and it segues into another very deep moment that's a real outer voices-y kind of a moment. So um, I'm interested to hear any feedback you have about this. What we, I guess what I mean by outer voices-y is that, like I said with the, with the um, Chantal Long part, is we try to pack a lot of information in and we really try to make it not sound like news. We really try to make it not sound like reporting, but just like, wow, what, that's really interesting. It really, we, try, we work extremely hard to make our facts correct when we're narrating, but we also work extremely hard to make it sound like a story. And that's really, just because I am the way I am, I have a real hard time reading papers and I, never, I don't even have a TV, I don't watch the news, it's just that's how I get my information and I think there's a lot of people like me. And so um, we try to bring in sort of this is what's really going on and contextualize it in such a way that you're just thinking you're listening to a story. Okay, so let me try that one more time here. What track am I on? This is 12. As for our current people, we have the landmines fighting on the landmines or people walking in their village, they step on the mine, like that all the time. So we have lots of amputees. So these are the pictures. I try to encourage them. Lydia Tomlawa of the Karen Women's Organization shows me photographs of the amputee Special Olympics. She organizes it each year in the refugee camps. I have sports for them. They are very, very happy because uh, they think that they are not uh, left behind. No eyes, both hands amputated. No feet. It's not pretty, not so pretty, but they are stronger than the ordinary people with both legs. Throughout Mela camp, faded posters identify different types of landmines. Both the Burmese and Karen militaries use landmines, so Burmese soldiers often force Karen villagers to work as human landmine detectors. And the women and the children, they make them go in front to be their minesweepers. So in the daytime, they have to carry what we call a shell, big shell, three shells. And that's very heavy, big shells and long ones, very heavy. And in the nighttime, they were raped. One is 17 years old. You can imagine this single girl, how she will suffer. You can imagine that. Oh. 
told me, Auntie, we don't know whether we are pregnant or not, we don't know. As for our people, it's a great sin to have abortion. So it's very hard. I cannot give them, and so I'm so sorry for them. sent by the high officer, the SPDC, to the soldiers in front and to the officer in front that they can do to the current people. They can do whatever they want to do. Yeah, so like they can kill, they can rape, and they can loot and whatever they want. They use it as systematically and uh, as a weapon. It's not only like in the current state, but in the Shan state, the Mon state, the Lahu areas, and other ethnic areas as well. Zipporah and the Quran Women's Organization produced the report Shattering Silences, which documents rape cases by Burmese SPDC soldiers against Quran women. Traditionally, the Quran women did not want to speak up for their suffering. It's kind of a shameful for them. It's very difficult to collect the information. If the current people have a problem, we will face it together. KWO's Let That Win was appalled by Burmese soldiers raping women and forcing villagers to carry their weapons. She organized a women's defense group. When I fought the SPDC soldiers, they did not dare to touch the women in my village. But they threatened my family, so I came to the refugee camp to work for women's rights. Let Let Win no longer carries a rifle. Today she helps women in cases of domestic violence, organizes income generation projects, and coordinates care for orphans, widows, abused women, and the elderly. I just realized that all these sections I'm playing are kind of downers. <laughs> the pieces themselves are not, they're just sort of, I'm picking some kind of dramatic moments. But, uh, yeah. So, one, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just wondering, um, did you go on this trip for this piece? Yeah. Well, I think it'd be really nice to speak to how you don't get depressed when you're doing stories like this, when you're in the moment like that, because it takes so much fortitude when you're struggling with, you know, tell us about, like, it, you're struggling with the environment, you're, I mean, it's hard enough to travel, and, right. you know, do this work, and then yeah. can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, I can't say that I don't get depressed, though, because I do. I mean, that day, like, the day interview, let me just, I'll tell you this personal story. The third day I, land, I was in Cambodia, I got an email from one of my close friends back home in Sebastopol that one of my best friends died, okay? And she was my sound engineer in uh, Hawaii, and that was the start of my day. And then I spent the rest of the day interviewing women about girls, about what their lives were like, 
you know, living in brothels. It was a bummer of a day. It was like my low point in history that day. But, you know, on the other hand, the way I don't get depressed or stay depressed is because they're not depressed, you know? I mean, some people are kind of in a stuck point, but most of the people I talk to, they're like, you know, life is going on. Here we go. I'm in a refugee camp, but it doesn't suck. It's pretty okay. And these are the things that are working. In fact, I've found that my reaction is much more like, oh, what a bummer, than, than, than when I really pay attention than what they're really telling me. I'm not, I know, in all my interviewing, I've yet to find people who really are bummed out about their stories. And I don't know why that is. But I've, I have to say, I've learned a lot from that experience. And I can find like the really negative take on it, or I can go with that. And that also, and so yeah, that's part of it. And part of it is... Physical stamina, part two, and all the things that you have to do, you know, to keep yourself going when you're doing this kind of, of story. Yeah, well, maybe you should tell me, <laughs> since you are experienced. Yeah. Okay. It, it's a struggle. Yeah. Well, you know, I learned a lot too from the social workers in Cambodia. Because I said, I mean, I put that to them. I was like, how do you, I mean, they would take in like 100 clients a day and listen to these stories 100 times a day. I'm like, how do you do this? I mean, it's one of the reasons I got out of my line of work in um, New York was, you know, because I saw this huge chasm between people who were, you know, social work and supposed to be taking care of people, and how I felt in reaction to people's stories. And it is a kind of therapy that you do when you're doing really deep interviewing. And, and, um, and uh, they told me, and so I asked them, I said, well, how do you do this? I would really like to know. And they said, well, you know, we used to cry all the time, and then we just, we did some work on it together, and we got trained, and now we hear the stories but it was very Buddhist, the way they framed it. It was like, we hear what they need, and then we work with them on that, and that helps us to resolve how we feel. And that made perfect sense to me. You know, so they'll hear a story, and they'll frame it the way a radio producer ideally would be, that they're framing the story as they hear it, and they go, okay, these are the elements of this story's, of this person's story, and where are the places where we can help to shape what they go on to do next. And, um, and so, yeah, that was a pretty pivotal conversation for me in terms of the actual conversations. The other hard parts, and I have a piece that speaks exactly to this, is um, sometimes it can be extraordinarily isolating, especially if you're traveling by yourself, to be the only American within 5,000 miles and to be, have, him, have been traveling for two months or what have you. And I haven't been in that situation without our voices because I'm always traveling with people, but I have been in that situation traveling before where it can feel very depressing because you're very tired. And it's very, um, always dealing with a language barrier, always being the outsider, always being suspect, and um, never being able to go home can be wearing on you. And um, it does get to you. And I have a piece. Uh, that is sort of like the existential dilemma of what happens when you spend too much tra time traveling. And I'll, it's not my piece, but I, I mean, I make 
I don't want to diminish it because the producer of this piece is also the producer of our piece, Katule, and I think he's a brilliant man. And um, but this is what happens when you when when you're on the road a little bit too long. The thing about Easter Island is that it's in the middle of nowhere, a thousand miles from the nearest anything, an otherwise unimportant island in the South Pacific, right down the lines of longitude from where you live. Otherwise unimportant if it weren't for the Moai, you know, the big stone heads. You've probably seen them on TV. That's Kai, a local sculptor. His yard is full of works in progress, carved from wood scraps or red volcanic rock. Over there is a gravestone for his father, who passed away last week. Since Kai seems to be carrying on the sculpting craft of his ancestors, I figured maybe he could clue me in on how the mysterious Moai were built. He tells me the ancient Rapa Nui chiefs possessed supernatural mental powers, and with a little help from some Martians, made the statues stand up and walk. He's just messing with me. But legend says that the Moai, which can weigh up to 80 tons, walked from the volcanic quarry to their positions along the rocky coast. I decide to walk around the island for a few days, checking out petroglyphs hidden in the grass and the half-buried Moai, left unfinished at the quarry or lying derelict along the shoreline. Some archaeologists think the Moai were transported by rolling the immense stone sculptures on top of the trunks of palm trees. But the few trees here today were introduced by foreigners. So if these archaeologists are right, the Rapa Nui deforested their island completely in order to build their statues. The Moai aren't revealing any of their secrets. They just gaze over the barren landscape. Anyway, I'm no archaeologist. I came to the most remote inhabited island on Earth to hear what kind of music the locals play. Lucky for me, I run into Dan Bendrips, an Australian ethnomusicologist working on his PhD. After months of research on the island, he's brought one of the most respected Rapa Nui musicians out of retirement. Together with another student, Papa Kiko sings us this song, which he wrote when the first Moai were restored in 1960. The lyrics describe their pride in seeing this memory of their ancestors being lifted up again, you know, having been destroyed and, and, uh, and ruined previously.
The thing about Easter Island is that there are no trees. The palms went extinct centuries ago, so the locals could move those big stone heads. Went extinct to move the big stone heads so there wasn't any wood left. No wood to build boats for fishing or to leave the island. Some of the greatest navigators who ever lived, they found little old Easter Island out in the empty blue waters, and there's no wood left to go fishing. No wood for fires, no wood to escape. No wood left because they built those big stone heads. You know some guy went to work one day and his boss says, Tote, cut down that palm over there. And Tote looks at the last tree on the island and he goes and does his job. Cuts down the last tree on the island and there's no more wood. And Tote gets his paycheck and the people go hungry and turn to war and cannibalism. And they topple every last one of the big stone heads. And the white folks come on an Easter Sunday and they baptize the non-believers with hydrochloric acid. And the islanders get smallpox on the slave ships while their families back home sit on the reservations. And then the white people find out about the toppled heads and the dying culture. And they come back with anthropologists and photographers to marvel at the big stone heads all toppled on the ground. And the anthropologists and photographers bring some money and they resurrect the big stone heads. And the tourists come and they let the locals off the reservations. And the locals grow dreadlocks and raise horses in the treeless hills. Because Tote went to work one day and left them all stranded. The thing about Easter Island is that it's in the middle of nowhere. A thousand miles from the nearest anything. An otherwise unimportant island in the South Pacific. Right down the lines of longitude from where you live. On the island we call Earth. As the moon rises over the Pacific, I'm Jack Chance for Savvy Travel. I'm bummed. That's <laughs> <laughs> beautiful, yes. Yeah. I mean, he's an amazing uh, sound recordist. He's good that way. But yeah, I mean, that's a... There's definitely stuff that you that I grapple with that I never would have had to grapple with before about what it is to be an American just because of being overseas. I mean, it's great. It's a great privilege to have that opportunity. But sometimes it can be a bummer, you know. And it is really easy, I think, especially if you're young and um, you're sort of opening your eyes to the, um, you know, to the real world. Um, for the first time to go, wow, I can't believe what I'm doing, you know, or what my people are doing in this world. And and that can be really hard and it can be really depressing and I, I wouldn't pretend otherwise. But yeah, I think it's really important to travel with people and to not travel too long. And it's a really good idea to have a story before you go. If your intention is to travel to do stories, figure a story out before you go. Or if you've never traveled before, go travel See how it feels, get your feet on the ground, come back, figure out a story, and then go again. Yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to ask about funding. Did your group get foundation grants and then where do your stories care? Okay. Yeah, we get funding from foundations and from people, from individuals. And uh, it's a scramble. Um, I, you know, I, I hear that there's ways to get, a, you know, get commissions. <laughs> I haven't yet. We've done all of our own funding as we go. We didn't intend to. We had hoped to get a big chunk, but that didn't happen. But it wasn't going to stop me from doing it. And so um, 
We got one big chunk from the Ford Foundation, which was great. And we got a lot of production work done and a few pieces done with that. Um, and we got other foundations along the way. And I, our credibility has increased as we do pieces and get them aired. We haven't got one specific market. I work with Creative PR, which is a marketing firm based in LA. And, um, and they're great. They've gotten our pieces on a whole bunch of stations, I think, Claire and I were just going over it last night. It's sort of hard to tell because there's overlap. I think between the two, Hula, between Hula Lesson and Girls from Cambodia, which the only ones we have courage reports on now, we have them on about 200 stations in the U.S. And we have about, I'd say between 15 and 20 stations internationally and about 20 stations in Canada. And it's all just by plugging away, emailing stations and following up and sending them postcards and sending them CDs and sending them CDs again and being able to download off our site and off PRX. Yeah, go ahead. And what about the CBC? Do, do they air nationally in Canada or are there specific? No, it's station to station in Canada too. The, well, nationally, we were, broad, we were podcasted on the National Film Board of Canada website. The Girls from Cambodia piece was nationally podcasted that way. Yeah. Go ahead. You started out talking about how, um, as Americans, American audiences aren't really open to being global in their everyday concerns and, and getting feedback from the rest of the world. So I wondered about, uh, and that's just a huge problem in dealing with your audiences, and I wondered um, if you could talk about your approach in, in dealing with that and some of your tactics, just the challenges of American audiences who don't care. Yeah. I wouldn't say, first of all, I really want to make sure that people understand I'm not cynical about American audiences. It's, I don't think it's that they don't care. It's just that they don't know. And um, there's no reason. And also, we've always had media done for us in such a way that it always comes back to this is how it affects you. This is how it impacts you. This is what it has to do with your life. I don't think that's true everywhere in the world. And so we're accustomed to this certain kind of information. And so when we don't hear that, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And we definitely won't get a piece sold if we don't shape, shape it that way. Or you won't get a piece, a print piece sold if you don't somehow tie it into the experience of your readers. That's just the bottom line. So what the heck does the Pacific Islands and, the, and Southeast Asia have to do with Americans right now? That is, it takes some effort. And so for us, I go for them, I'm, I'm like, I, personally, there's two things that go on. There's my personal agenda, and, and that's a very big picture thing. And then there's how I contextualize it. So for me, I see what the Pacific Islands has for us. They have this many thousand years history of going from island to island, establishing these utterly sustainable societies. And we're in a position now where we're crumbling societies and we're rebuilding them. We have a lot to learn from that, don't we? But that is not newsy news, is it? So we have to find ways to bring that information in without saying, this is about creating sustainable societies. But that is really what the Pacific Island pieces are about. The Southeast Asian pieces, to me, I hadn't particularly expected we were going to target Southeast Asia, but it became Im immediately clear. Southeast Asia is a part of the world that has suffered repeated um, collapse of after war, most recently inflicted upon by Americans, and therefore have huge amount of practical experience in rebuilding from uh, after war. 
And that's a huge amount of ex expertise that we can draw from right now for our, ourselves. Afghanistan being an example, Iraq. And so, but again, I don't say it that way. What, I, what we do try to do to bring this into the American audience is we, bring, is we give very concise, understandable histories. That's a big part of it. It's like, this is what's going on in Cambodia, da-da. And this is, why we're, this is how you get there. And then the, the last part of that is we say, this is um, uh, this is what Americans' role is in trafficking in, in, in Asia. This is what Americans are doing in relation to the Karen refugees. There's always that tie-in in every piece. And I have a couple of examples of those histories, of how we do those histories for American audiences. If you would like, I'll play them. I don't know how much time we have. This, one, this one's kind of interesting because it's done uh, sort of like a montage. Burma, for hundreds of years, was ruled by the Burmese kings. All the ethnic peoples are under their rule. Burma become a British colony, and the living standard is quite good. Lydia Tamlawa of the Karen Women's Organization. No need to fear of anything. Oh, you have a free life. You can travel freely. You can communicate with everybody. It's democracy everywhere. For the first time, the ethnic people feel that they have some equal treatment. Job opportunities, education, Sautete of the Karen Refugee Committee. But then, during the Second World War, there was nationalism for Burma to achieve independence from British rule. Burma sided with the Japanese, and the Koreans, they are loyal to the British. The Burmese military, they see that the Koreans sided with the imperialists, with the British. And so there's a conflict between the Burmese and the Koreans from that onward. When Britain was about to give independence to Burma, they knew very well that there will be trouble. The Koreans, when they asked for their freedom, they asked for their own states. And the Burmese said, if you want your freedom, you have to fight. I, we only have a few more minutes, it looks like. So I just wanted to see if there's any more questions before we wrap up. Just because uh, there's so much goes into these projects and there's much time and money and expense going out there across the world, do you have any notions as to how to give your projects a little bit of you know longevity and, and, and life after they're broadcast? I mean, obviously it's it's a it's an ephemeral medium we're working in, but putting so much into it, um, you know, do you have do you have thoughts about how to keep it around? Well. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what you mean. So, well, I mean, I'll, you know, you, you spend months and months of your life working on a, a documentary that's a half hour, an hour long, or you know, it airs and goes away. I mean, do you have any kind of like, I don't know if you use the web or if you use any kind of other media or, or sort of streams to kind of keep it alive and keep people hearing it after it's aired on this or that station? Yeah. Well, for one thing, we make the pieces really evergreen. 
so we don't tie it to current events. For one thing, the pieces take so long to produce that we can't make them that current anyways. And so that means that there's a possibility of these pieces being played over a period of years, which is nice. It's a really, you know, and they do, they do get played. Um, and the other thing is we do use the web and we're trying, what we're, our plan is, is to expand the way we're using the web. We have a website now that's really just a page, but we're trying to expand it so that people can integrate the visuals with the audio more and also use it as a place to get more background information when they get really stirred up. We don't want to just broadcast. We want people to get interested and find out more. Yeah, I mean, it's just yet another project. But yes, I mean, there are people who, you know, a lot of educators are interested in doing that. So it would be great to do it. It's just, you know, it's just a matter of getting to the point where we can get that done. But, but people are already using the pieces in the classroom, which I think is just so cool, you know. Um, it gets used in a lot of, these pieces get used in a lot of different ways. So I don't really feel like it's just done and it's over with. So far anyways, yeah, go ahead. I know we're close to the end of the session, and so I don't want to invite you to uh, do a 30-second buildings remind of yourself, but uh, at what point do you feel you became an anthropologist, or do you feel you are an anthropologist in a way you're, you, you're taking all this radio technology out and exercising it very much as a field anthropologist yourself? Oh, I never called myself an anthropologist. Did I? No. If I did, no, it was a mistake. I, no, I didn't say. I didn't, <laughs> okay. I didn't say you had called yourself. Okay. That, but in my perceptions, you're sort of functioning like that. Yeah, it's true. My mom's an anthropologist. I'll confess, and I've always battled with her about anthropology. Mom, anthropology is no good. But it is true. It is sort of anthropology because you're going out and you're trying to find out about people. I mean, at what point did I, I mean, I've always been interested in people, and so this is sort of a natural expression for me. It gives me an excuse to ask people questions. So you grew up with this notion of, from anthropology very early on, though, that of, rel of being relative, you know, understanding the point of view versus whether that's valid in another society or not. Yeah, I guess you mean, like, is anthropology... I'm not sure. Tell me again. One of the great sins in anthropology, as I understand it, is to be relative, is to yeah. use your values to try to understand somebody else's society. Right, yeah. And you seem to be breaking down that, you know, saying that you're not, uh, to put it another way, bringing the values of other societies whole, whole cloth into ours so we can perceive them more on their own terms. Yeah. Oh, there's a whole other thing I didn't even get to bring up, which is another way to do international work, which is the opposite of what I'm doing. And that is to go into the areas that this is what a lot of people are doing just to be able to go overseas and do radio is to go and help people set up their own community broadcasting systems. And that's huge right now. And that's not doing anything like this. But yeah, what I'm doing is basically like going out there and getting a story and translating it back to an American audience. It's more like translating. That's how I see it. It's like, well, how can an American wrap their head around this story? And so it's really important for me to keep living in the U.S. while we do these stories in order for me to be able to do that kind of translating. I, does that answer your question? Okay. All right. Go ahead. Just a quick question. Uh, taking off from the idea of longevity. Uh -huh. When I produce features for my radio station, a lot of times, even a five to six minute piece, people will email me and ask if I have a script. If you have what? script that I can send, like the sound just kind of goes by and they 
they get certain things out of it that interest them, but they feel like they miss a lot of the details. Right. And I wonder if for a feature like a documentary of the length that you're producing, you get similar requests. And if you think that making a script like that would be available to people is a good idea. I don't see why not. I mean, why wouldn't it be okay? I can't think of any, any reason, but I don't know if anyone who does it either. Yeah, we don't have them in our website, but we have them on PRX. You know, I mean, any station can get hold of our transcripts as part of how we load our pieces in. And I have no problem sharing my transcripts. I can't figure out what would be the hit, the hook, the the hitch. But maybe I'm not thinking. <laughs> maybe I don't know everything. You know, I don't. I can't imagine why you wouldn't want to share your transcript. I, I think it, you know, if it helps people to get a better sense of the story, but I also feel I'm like really emphatic about giving people more access to the background information where it came from too. And if people want to know all of our, all of our, re, all of our sources, I'll give them all our sources. I love that. You know, it's like, yeah, you're into this. Great. You know, here's some more stuff. Um, but I'm also not selling, you know, we give our pieces away. And so I'm not in the business of selling pieces. And maybe it's a little bit more compromising when you're protecting, you know, whatever. You're licensing a bit more than we do. So I guess that really wraps it up. Thank you for hanging in there all this time.